You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 109. On today's show, I chat with Broadway producer Heather Shields about how to invest in a Broadway show. We discuss recoupment schedules and break-even points, the 40-year exploitation period of an author's work, investing early is riskier but can provide a higher return, the three types of producers on Broadway, lead, executive, and co, and the importance of the 10 days before Christmas for seasonal Broadway shows. There are no outtakes this week for patrons. Instead, I've split this episode into two parts with the second half coming next week. Now, if you're a patron, you have access to that already on the Patreon podcast feed. If you aren't a patron, you can access it at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And if you watch this interview on YouTube, please click subscribe to keep our new episodes popping up into your newsfeed. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel. We are recording this July 24th, 2022, and our guest today is Heather Shields, a Broadway producer of A Christmas Carol and Bandstand, and an off-Broadway producer of Puffs, the Harry Potter parody, which ran for seven years at least. And my sister, who is a Harry Potter nerd came and visited she saw that show and she raved about it for like a year or two she probably will still rave about it if you bring it up to her (laughs) heather is also a gm and an associate at tom smeeds and founder of the business of broadway and then heather is also producing a show called bruce which had an out of town tryout in seattle and is aiming for broadway question mark Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it is Broadway bound. We'll, we'll see, we can say that. Okay, perfect. Broadway bound, Bruce. So Heather, did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, I mean, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm a lot busier than even that. But um, uh, yeah, thank you for being so comprehensive in that introduction. Okay, awesome. So a couple icebreakers right off the bat here. Um, and also, by the way, thank you for doing this early on a Sunday morning. Many, many thanks. There's no such thing as early when you have a three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is the most recent live event that you experienced as an audience member? Oh, what a great question. Um what, uh, not counting something that I was acti- actively working on. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I was out in Chicago last weekend. I saw Life After at the Goodman, um, a new musical by Britta Johnson uh, that was really something very special. I'm still thinking about. I'm still kind of processing, which I hope is the artist's intention. Amazing. So if you have to pick something for enjoyment, do you usually go for theater or musical? Frankly, not as much these days. Um you know, it's hard to fully give myself over and just in term, turn that side of my brain off and just enjoy things. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think I'm rare or I mean, I, yeah, I don't think um, I don't think I'm alone in that sentiment, um, though. I do still get a great deal of joy out of theater and I do absolutely recognize the gift that I have in being able to work within this field as a career. 
if there is a follow-up to that, the thing that the things that I like to do for joy, I love, I love movies. So it's all, it still goes back down to storytelling, but because I don't have that experience in making of them, I can actually just turn off my brain and, and hopefully enjoy the storytelling process. And my husband and I are really big craft beer fans. So we love going to breweries and doing that kind of stuff. So I would say those are two of my, you know, casual time enjoyments. That's awesome. You're definitely not alone and not necessarily going to the theater for enjoyment all the time. <laughs> um, all right, your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? I am really great with other people's money. I am improving my own. Um, my own. And I don't know um, how many other uh, folks you've spoken to of what would identify as my generation. I just feel like I've been on the precipice for so long. And then like some, then there's a recession and then I have a baby and then there's a global, <laughs> there's a global meltdown. Um, and then I'm on, you know, so, um, but I'm feeling like things have stabilized a little bit for me and I'm just uh, getting to a place where I actually have a savings account, which is really an exciting thing for, uh, for a producer to act who doesn't come into the industry already having, um, independent sources of wealth. Um, I think it's a pretty significant thing. And so I'm, I'm feeling proud of myself about that. But rest assured, anyone who uh, has worked with me as a general manager, <laughs> before, um, I'm very, very good with other people's money. I love that. I love that. And just out of curiosity, how long have you been producing? You know, it's a funny question, or it's a great question, probably my whole life, if you think about it, right? <laughs> If all of life is a stage, um, I've been bossing people around, <laughs> telling people what to do my whole life in a more active uh, theatrical sense. I woke up one day in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and realized that these concerts I'd been putting together, these readings, these fundraisers, these summer camps, these theatrical summer camps, that all of that had... Um, there was a, a word for what I was doing. Even more specifically, there was there was a, two words uh, or two different jobs I was taking on. I was taking on the role of producer. I was also taking on the role of a general manager. And I just sort of was falling into it. And so I went to, I went to grad school to learn actually how to more properly do it. Not necessarily like how to produce or how to general manage, but just to like have a holistic understanding of... Um, how, what, what are the best business practices when doing that? I also went in with the intention of uh, leaving and working at a nonprofit or starting a nonprofit. Uh, of course, the commercial, the call of commercial theater called me. Um, uh, it rang. And it's, it's vitally important, I believe, that anyone who works in any uh, sector of theater understands um, both the commercial model and the nonprofit model, because they intersect so often. Don't answer anything you don't want to answer. But how old were you when you went to grad school for that? And what were you studying there? Uh, I got into Columbia, I was 26. I took I did a two year master's in arts administration. Um, again, which was a little bit more focused towards the nonprofit. But what was really great about that program was it was very much a choose your own adventure. So after I was there for uh, my first semester, I'd taken a lot of the core courses. I realized I really was much more interested uh, in pursuing a career in commercial theater, but that was not a difficult thing for me to do. 
Uh, about a third of my qu- courses I took at the Columbia Business School itself. Uh, about a quarter of them I took uh, with uh, law professors. And um, so I was really able to cobble together a, a really great two-year program. And my focus ended up being, my thesis ended up being on that intersection between nonprofit and commercial theater. If you want to invite me on for like a three-hour podcast about enhancement deals, I uh, will not stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And just so I know, you know, just, you know, I might know this, but maybe somebody listening doesn't know uh, what's an enhancement deal. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. When uh, a nonprofit is going to produce something that um, either has been brought to them by a commercial producer, or perhaps the commercial producer comes on later, the nonprofit might say, hey, you know, we have four shows in a season and we have a million dollars budgeted for every one of our shows. This show that you, commercial producer, have brought to me, it'll actually cost $2 million to produce this show and develop this show here at our nonprofit. Uh, If you'd like to bring it to us, you just need to enhance our budget by $1 million. In exchange, the producer gets to work under the auspices of a really great, hopefully, nonprofit partner. They get to develop it there. They don't have to worry about selling tickets because the nonprofit will actually be um, theoretically have subscribers that will come. The nonprofit, though, is the producer of record and the nonprofit ends up it keeps all the box office. But um, it's a increasingly it was very popular back when I did my thesis, uh, which I finished in 2013. It is now the vast majority of Broadway bound musicals ha- uh, have uh, an out-of-town engagement that involves some sort of enhancement deal, unless you're a property like Moulin Rouge, you know, which you know has such commercial appeal already that they can kind of go out of town without doing it under the auspices of a nonprofit. Got it. Long answer. Sorry, this is what I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I know the rage in the last couple of years on like um, Wall Street has been SPACs, like special acquisition. It sort of sounds like a SPAC for theater. That's interesting. That's a really interesting comparison. Um, uh, I know that there are people smarter than I that would have a really quick uh, answer about like all the ways that they check that boxes. Because I I wouldn't say that it necessarily speeds things up the way that a SPAC can, right? If I understand SPACs correctly. But what it does do is it does make it much less expensive for an out-of-town tryout because you're working under the auspices of the union agreements of the nonprofit, which are, of course, subsidized. Right, of course. Okay, well, everybody heard it here. Heather will be back for a three-hour special episode about enhancements. (laughs) (laughs) So if that's up your alley, tune back in. I'm just going to mention this because I feel like this is something we should say at the beginning of this, which is, You and I are not finance professionals, and anybody listening should consult a finance professional before making any decisions. And I also want to mention risk, um, because you already mentioned having a savings account, not an independently wealthy person that's just throwing money at things. So I'm saying this because I think a lot of shows don't make their money. Whatever we talk about here, um, and I read a Forbes article back in 2019, and it said in that season that only three-fourths of shows, or no, no, sorry, three-fourths of shows lost money, um, and they lost all of it, or they lost a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. In a typical season, 20 to 25% of new musicals will will recoup. The rest will not. And what we're, um, and by recoup, what I mean, of course, is when the investors have received all of their initial investment back, they haven't lost any money yet. They haven't made a profit yet. So that's that moment of recoupment. It is increasingly rare um, to get 
Anything in between, though, is one of the interesting things. And I don't know if anybody's actually done a study on this because shows don't typically say, oh, yes, we did. We were able to send 20% back or we were able to send 5% back. Anecdotally, though, I suspect that though the 20 to 25% mark has actually remained fairly consistent over the years, it used to be that you'd see a show they might not have recouped, but they sent half of the money back or they sent 70% or they came really close. And I think what we're seeing these days is an all or nothing. And I could speculate as to the reasons why about that, of course, but um, you are accurate. It is a very risky business. In fact, the paperwork associated with making an investment on Broadway, on one of the for earliest pages, it's like, it's essentially to like break it down into like non-legalese. It's like, why are you doing this? This is a terrible idea. Only do this if you can afford to lose all of your money. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I don't know if if, if this is worth getting into, um, but there's a difference between producer and investor, right? So investor is the one that's risking their money. A producer isn't necessarily risking their money? They don't have to. Um, so we have a couple different types of, of what we call producer. You have the lead producer who kind of serves as is like the CEO of the startup, right? They form the company, they make all the financial decisions, they make the buck stops with them about everything. They are the they are the head of the company. There might be somebody called an executive producer associated with the show and reasons why a show might have an executive producer and not all do, but reasons might be because uh the lead producer might be very new to the to the industry, wants somebody who's a little bit more seasoned, has the connections has comparisons to make, you know, to help guide them. Another reason might be it's a producer who's just so prolific that they sh couldn't ever actually have time to focus on every single one. And so they need one person acting as their, uh, as their proxy, you know, so to speak. Uh, no matter what, though, uh, you'll typically have co-producers. And those are the folks who um, uh, the lead producer often uh, will turn to to really help raise the money. Those are the folks, when you look at a Broadway playbill, you might see on the very top line, anywhere from one to five names. And then you see a huge block of names. Those are your co-producers. They can either raise or cause to be raised, meaning they can either write a check themselves or go out and get a whole bunch of people to write smaller checks. Co-producers, just like lead producers are not obligated to write checks themselves. And so that's an important distinction to make. Somebody could be both a producer and an investor. They don't have to be. And so for someone like myself, and there are plenty of other examples in this industry who are not independently wealthy enough to actually be able to write a check ourselves, we simply, we we pound the pavement, we knock on the doors, we you know, get other people who do have the means to invest and and the risk appetite, I guess, <laughs> to invest and convince them to to join us on this journey. Incredible. Okay, so executive producer. I actually always assumed executive producer meant that person was bringing a ton of money, and they weren't necessarily going to do the work, and they just wanted the title. Not in theater. So not in theater. Okay. So executive producer is somebody that's maybe hired by the lead producer to sort of help. It's a hired, it is a hired position. It is a salaried or fee, a, a position with a fee. Um, I'll, I, again, just to talk, like go back to filmmaking, it's just not my forte, but um, that may be the case for somebody who 
that works in film, they might bring a bucket of money. Um, I'm not, I, again, I don't know entirely, but I do know that the word producer between film, television, and, and theater have very different meanings. Got it. Okay. So then those five names that are at the top, so it's executive producer, and then you have lead producer, five names of those? Uh, you, no, typically, uh, and uh, forgive me for not explaining it well, you'll have that, that top line will be your lead producers. The block below them typically is where you see your co-producers. The executive producer is really easy to pinpoint because it usually says executive producer next to their name. Got it. Okay. And so then in all of this, I was missing just regular producer. So is that general term just doesn't really exist? You're either a lead, a co or executive? Yeah, you can usually you can usually tell um, just by the amount of their involvement or the way they're talking about a show. Um, if you've been around the industry long enough, you know, folks that are typically co-producers. Uh, and so when they say I'm producing something, then that's what they're talking about. Lead producers desperately, like very much need co-producers. I shouldn't say desperately. Lead producers need co-producers. Co-producers need lead producers. So we all, you know, there's no, um, there's no real problem with just identifying yourself as as a producer. Uh, the sticky wicket for some becomes if someone's an investor and they call themselves a producer. Personally, call yourself call yourself whatever you want. If you're involved in in my show, uh, I'm just so happy to have you on the team. But that's the distinct, that's more of an important distinction to make between an investor and a producer. Got it, got it. We had Irene Gandy on, and oh. I think I asked her a similar question about investor, producer, like, what's the difference? And she goes, eh, everybody wants to call themselves a producer. So- yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it, and the, from a legal standpoint, only the lead producers actually have decision-making power. Um, and that's a part of a very long of that operating agreement that I mentioned before, that very long legal document. Um, even co-producers don't have any um, legal authority. And so a lot of times you'll hear someone say uh, that they're a lead producer. You might even also hear them say GP, meaning general partner, even if their actual entity is an LLC and, and their legal distinction is a managing member. Uh, colloquially in this industry, we we tend to call ourselves GPs. Got it. Okay. So that's interesting about those, the five lead producers all have um, legal authority to make decisions. Not It's not just like one is picked out to make all the decisions. There, it, it, every, every show is going to be, di- every show is going to be different. There may be um, a, one producer who has um, more authority than, than the others, but those lead producers, it could be one, it could be three, two, it could be, you know, I don't think I've seen more than five lead producers. Typically, I, I would say in my experience, typically the lead producers share decision-making authority. And then in practice, you know, you may have one producer who is doing a little bit more of the day-to-day, but you know, it's all about their, their relationships. Okay. So just broad strokes that we all know, and I want to focus more today on like the investing part of it. So the producing, I just needed to differentiate between the producing and the (laughs) investing. Um, Investing seems as simple as that's the money. So, but broad strokes, how does a show budget work? Sort of like, like say it's zero and it's the show's just an idea or something all the way to sort of like closing where we close out the legal entity and the show is no longer a thing. Great question. My mind is just popping off and I'm like, how do I answer this in a not like 10 minute monologue? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that would be fine too. And, and also when you're answering this, I don't know if it's possible to use a real world example. Um, sure. I'll do my best to pepper in real examples um, uh, throughout 
what a lot of people are surprised to hear is that almost immediately after that it's zero dollars and I just have an idea, you start spending money. Because um, your first question that you have to ask yourself, whether you are the producer or you are the creative uh, a member, a creative person who's actually going to put pen to paper, is my musical based on something that's pre-existing? Is, do I have to secure underlying rights to it? So am I basing my musical off of a movie, off of a novel, off of an article, off of somebody's life? So if you are basing it and it's not a part of the public domain or it's not a, an original story, you're pretty much going to start spending money from from before you put your pen to paper. Those kinds of deals are kind of, we describe it as kind of being the Wild West. There is no cut and dry sort of template or fee structure. You might have, if it's a, if it's someone who wrote a novel, you know, it might be the kind of person that's like, great, pay me $10,000 and give me a bunch of seats to opening night. See you there. You might have someone who says, oh, that's going to cost you $10,000 or $100,000 just to like, for me to give you the okay. I want approval over everything. Oh, and I want to write the book. You know, um, they might want to be very involved. Um, and so those negotiations can look like anything. Additionally, you're already starting to pay legal fees, right? If you are negotiating those kinds of deals, you're having a lawyer do that. Then you're deciding who's writing it. Um, then you are optioning it, um, which is a kind, which is a, an agreement in theater, which means that a producer has the option to produce the show. A really important distinction, again, between theater and film and television is that in theater, writers always own their work. So producers only ever option the right to produce it to or to, you know, to exploit it, as we as we say, legally. Um, And that ability to exploit uh, to exploit the work is limited, uh, not only in territory, but in duration. And when those that that time comes to an end, whether it's been a show that's been produced for decades and decades, or something that never got off the ground, those rights revert back to the author. So the producer will have the right to produce it. And again, not own the material, even if it feels like it's a work for hire situation, it is not in theater. Um, That will cost you money as well. Then you start bringing in your actors and you start bringing in stage managers because you have actors uh, and you might do a reading. Well, that might cost you anywhere from, depending on the type of reading you want to do, it can cost you anywhere from 25 to 100 to a half a million dollars just to do a reading. And if you're doing a workshop, we're probably getting inching close up to a million dollars. So before you've ever had an, an audience that is paying for tickets that you don't know, coming in and seeing your show, whether you are doing that commercial out of town, like I described, or you're doing that enhancement deal, you can expect to spend anywhere from tens of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars before you've ever had butts in the seat hearing the show. Enhancement deals can run, then you're, let's say you're ready to do your out of town, your first out of town tryout. If you're, let's say, because it's the default, you're looking to do a um, an enhancement deal, that can range anywhere from a million to $4 million, depending on the theater you're going to and where that is and how big your show is. So before you've ever actually started raising money for Broadway, you will have needed to raise at least a million dollars, let's say, it just in development costs. And you'll do that by, um, uh, the mechanism by, of doing that is smaller uh, than, than the paperwork that you, would be associated with a Broadway entity. But it's almost harder in some ways 
because it's much like it's much more like um, venture capitalism. It's the riskiest of investments because there's no actual guarantee that a show is going to go to Broadway, that it's going to take that next step. Everything you've written, you will have a development entity. Let's say, so for Bruce, our development entity is called Amity Island LLC. Um, and so everything that we've raised so far for Bruce has been under Amity, Amity Island. When we, um, which is actually going to be very soon, when we raise for our next step, it will be, it will be what we hope to be the Broadway entity called Bigger Boat Broadway LLC. Then everything we've raised thus far will roll over into this bigger boat Broadway LLC in the, in the simplest of terms. It'll roll over. So for example, let's say we raised $1.5 million for our pre-Broadway engagement, but let's say, and let's say we want to raise $15 million for Broadway. The good news is we've already raised 1.5, so we only have 13.5 to go. And so everything, like I said, will roll over and in a production budget that you've seen that you will probably have looked at as a potential investor, you'll see that line item for development expenses, 1.5 million. Let's say then we raised that other $13.5 million. It was really easy. Congratulations. <laughs> um, and we get to our Broadway opening night. That 13.5 million only got us to this point. It is not paying for ongoing expenses. So now you know, let's say we're if we were building a lemonade stand, right? We it cost us thirteen point five million dollars to, uh, or fifteen million dollars just to like have the idea, run it by mom and dad, pick out the place, source some lumber for our for our little stand, print up some nice signs um, and posters, and now we have opened our fifteen million dollar lemonade stand. Well, and we've sold our first couple of lemonades, but now we actually have to continue on a daily basis to go to the market, get some lemons, pick up some sugar uh, and have our uh, our nice ice cold filtered water. So we're going to have new expenses uh, or a new set of expenses to be familiar with, which are our operating expenses, our week to week expenses. Hopefully you keep your head as a as in show, you keep your head above water, above those operating expenses such that you can be steadily giving some money back to your investors over time. Um, but if you don't, your show's going to close. The good news is that hopefully you had a general manager and the theater owners also encouraged it, that you've already raised the money to close the show. Because it is very expensive to get a show out of a theater. It's something that most shows will do, I would say, because you the, the last thing anybody wants is for you to close your show and then you don't have the money to take the show out of the theater. Wait, I just assumed that was sort of like a rule that you had to raise the money for closing. Um, the rule is um, I had I had as well, and it seems that the uh, the rule is kind of um, evolving. Um, I think that there's a little bit more of an appetite to we can raise a little bit of it, but then we can accrue on a weekly basis the rest of it. Uh, I won't speak to other shows in that decision-making process. It's not something that I, with my general manager brain, am very comfortable with, um, especially in the world that we're living in. But great question. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. Now, the perks of being a patron are that you get a private podcast feed with all the bonus materials and early releases of each episode. Now, usually you get the outtakes from the interview, though this week I've included everything by splitting the interview in half. 
though all patrons already have the next episode in their podcast player. That is next week's episode where we discuss accredited investors, minimum investment units, and how to access opportunities to invest in Broadway shows. This show is free, but it is kept going by you, the patrons. Speaking of patrons, we have recently added two to our ranks. The incredible Savannah Bell joined us a couple weeks ago, and the fantastic Gary Archer joined up this week. Thank you to both of you, because in addition to keeping this show running, you are helping Artistic Finance give monthly support to more than 30 freelancers with side hustles, because 25% of the income generated from the podcast goes back to support artists or arts organizations. If you want to lend your support, please sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show. Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of um, from, uh, from idea to closing. The last thing that I will say, though, is that if you invest in a show that has never that that didn't didn't recoup or you know maybe send ten percent back or something and it's done, all is not lost. My colleague at Business of Broadway, Erica Rotstein, has gr- amazing stories about being involved in projects that you know were open in the nineties and um, closed, but took on such an amazing life in the regional theaters, in community theaters or high schools. Investors in a Broadway show typically participate in what we call subsidiary rights. And so monies that flow from doing all of, you know, when you see a show that maybe didn't do well on Broadway, but has done exceptionally well in community theaters across the country, um, the money that, 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 those, that, that, those, that licensing brings in, excuse me, that that licensing brings in flows back to the investors, the original investors of the Broadway company for up to 40 years. There are great stories of shows that didn't even come close to recouping on Broadway or were even an enti- a complete loss that have since in the deck in the decades since recouped uh, because of how well they've done regionally. And there are plenty of investors out there who've done this for a long time that look at something they see, you know, this isn't going to do very well on Broadway, but I want to invest for the long-term mailbox money, as we like to refer to it. <laughs> wow. Okay. So is that 40-year thing sort of standard? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that subsidiary rights, be, because the authors own their work, right? And because the right to produce that work reverts back to them, they typically will strike a deal with um, a licensing house like MTI um, or Broadway Licensing. In that option agreement that I talked about before, a producer... Um, and the entity that they're representing, the Broadway entity, will negotiate for those subsidiary rights. And it can be up to 40% of what the authors of the author's income for up to 40 years. It can be, it can really be a nice um, chipping away at at the loss over time. Like I said, uh, mailbox money, you kind of forget about this show. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get a thousand bucks here, a couple hundred there. I, I remember somebody asked us about Percy Jackson, the lightning thief. And I think at the last minute they were looking for some co-producers or investment money. And I sort of looked at it and I thought like, I don't think this show can make money because it was like a five week Broadway run. It was sort of like taking the tour and sitting it in. And I was just like, it's not going to make money. Who, what crazy person would invest in this show? But I didn't know about the 40 year thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the, um, 
details, the terms about the subsidiary rights should have been something that if it wasn't already disclosed within the paperwork that you received, you should have very easily been able to get an answer from from the person who was coming to you. I know nothing about Lightning Thief, um, and I, I, I don't recall ever actually even looking at their offering documents. So this is just, please take that with a grain of salt. But I do suspect that that folks who uh, were interested, who did invest in that in that production, absolutely recognize that that's a sh- that that is a property that could do exceptionally well in the regional theaters. And there are producers um, who would and probably did absolutely get involved because of that. Wow. Okay. You were talking about raising money for the out-of-town tryout that a show can spend a million dollars before it even makes a bid for Broadway or a plan for Broadway. If you're an early investor, I know like in like, they talk about startups like Facebook or something where it's like, oh, this person invested early and therefore they quadruple billion their money versus somebody who bought it at the public offering and only got a hundred percent increase. Is investing early, does that sort of make you more money or does it sort of dilute your shares when it goes to the Broadway version? Great question. So we don't, uh, when we pay, when we do distributions, financial distributions to our investors, um, uh, this is before we get to recruitment, right? When we're doing those capital distributions, just sending back the original money that you invested with us, we do that pro rata. We do it proportionally. We don't, and uh, we don't pay people back based on when the money was in or how much. It's just completely proportional. Investing early, your benefit for investing early kicks in post-recoupment. So the way that early money investors and co-producers are financially rewarded, let's put it that way, is only in the post-recoupment phase. So it's only in that one out of four, one out of five shows. And the way we do it is what we, we call it a kicker. We call it a profit perk. Um, pre-recoupment, 100% of profits go to investors. Post-recoupment, it goes 50% to investors and 50% to lead producers. I'm skipping a couple steps here, but I, I want to just boil it down to the easiest way to answer your question. So post-recoupment, it's 50-50, two of the investors and the lead producers. But from the lead producers side of the 50, we will give a kicker to the co-producers and we will give a kicker to those early money producers. And we call that Let's we call that um, like either a one for two or a one for three, one for four, or one for one even. And what we mean when we say that is, let's say for one for four, a one for four would mean that for every four dollars that you invested on the investor side, you get one dollar from the lead producer side. If it's like a one for two, for example, you know, it's for every two dollars, then you get one dollar. So if we had ten dollars to give out and somebody had had a one for two and they had raised 10% of the capitalization, well then in uh, pre-recoupment, they would get a dollar, right? But post-recoupment, they would get 50 cents from uh, their investment, and then they would get 20. We had a recording snafu right here, but Heather was going to say that they would get 25 cents from the producer's side. All right, so that's fascinating about the 1.2, 1.1 1. 1 for 4, etc. Yeah, it's also some of the most complicated math in all of of theater and theater producing in my opinion. So, um is is that clear? Like if you're going to invest, say you and in, your investors for Bruce in Seattle, was it clear to them about the 1 for 2, 1 for 4? Is that part of the conversation? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely, especially for new investors. Um, uh, luckily, once people do this for a little while, they they get to understand um, these terms. And so you don't have to actually uh, break it down. It's my experience through Business of Broadway. 
that I've really practiced. I've gotten a lot of experience in trying in explaining it in the most simplest in the simplest way. We also, you know, I'm so grateful to our co-producers on Bruce, uh, who believe in the, anyone who invests this early has to believe in a show. Several of which are first-time investors and um, first-time early money investors, and so. Uh, my producing partner, Tom Smeeds, and I got a really, you know, got a lot of really good practice in explaining these profit perks. I will say, though, that um, everyone has a different way of explaining it and everyone has a different way of understanding it. I, you know, I tend to explain it differently depending if someone has experience investing in uh, venture capital, you know, venture capital versus other types of investments. Um Folks who uh, invest in venture capital absolutely get it. They do sometimes tend to overcomplicate it in their because I, I think just because the mechanisms for investing in ventures such as that are, um, are are much more complicated. You know, theater finance can feel complicated, especially if you identify as wearing a more creative hat. Uh, but it's not so complicated uh, as as for folks who make investments for a living, if that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, Tom and I have gotten very good at explaining it all. I will also say, though, there are lead and co-producers I know who have been in this industry for a long time who actually don't have any idea what they just know, like that a one for one is better than a one for four, but they wouldn't be able to sit down and actually calculate it out for you what it means. Well, so say you were a first time investor like say you get the investing paperwork, et cetera, and it's in there. If if you don't see it, does it not exist? Or is it the same for every investor, depending on when they come in? Most favored nations. Yeah. Most favored for all investors in a show, um, whether it's early money or, money or later money, that's a, yes. All investors are our most favored nations. The only, so everybody receives the same paperwork. Um, and that'll be true with the early money raise, you know, with those operating agreements. And that'll be true for the, um, for the Broadway raise. So those operating agreements are the same. Um, again, most favored nations, meaning everybody's receiving the same terms. The only thing that's sort of negotiable is when you are that co-producer. Again, the financial terms have to be uh, most favored nations, but you as a co-producer may have other interests that you want to negotiate like touring rights or you want um, your billing to look a certain way. Co-producers receive billing and that's a huge advantage to, or that's a huge reason why people invest or or raise money at the co-producer level. And so that's the only document, your co-producer side letter is what it's called, that's actually somewhat negotiable. Everything else, most favored nations. Okay, so if you're bringing money in, you can rest assured that you're gonna get the same terms as the people coming in at the same time as you, at the same level as you. And then when you get into the co-producer, lead producer, all that, that's sort of extra stuff that you have to be more caring and involved with. And truly, if you if you're an investor, whether you invest twenty five thousand or two point five million from the investment portion of it, you are treated the exact same. Okay. Now you've mentioned recoupment a couple times, and that's when the show makes the money back, but it doesn't have a profit yet. How does that work? If I put in a hundred dollars at the very beginning of Bruce, and then let's say Bruce gets to Broadway and it's halfway recouped, do I see my fifty dollars back in my bank account? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if we've if we've got, if we've gotten fifty percent of the way, then you you have fifty dollars in your bank account, or or at the very least, you have you know forty dollars, and the ten dollar check is on your way on the way. Got it. Okay, so but it actually goes. I wasn't sure if like when it recouped one hundred percent, that's then when you got the money in the bank account. 
No, uh, you know, just from a an accounting perspective, and as you mentioned at the top, um, though I am I am a third generation bookkeeper, I am not actually an accountant. Um, my my mother is a CPA, my brother is a CPA, so it's in my blood. But um, but accountants tend to not like productions just sitting on all that cash, so they they'll encourage um, they'll encourage shows to distribute as much as feels you know safe to. Uh, it tends to be, let's say, no more than quarterly because it's actually quite a big lift in terms of workload for the general management office who typically processes those distributions. Because you'll have any, I mean, I think on Bandstand, we had 130 investors and that's not atypical. You can have hundreds of investors in a show. And um, so it, you no more than quarterly are sending, sending out distributions and they may be a 5%, a 10%. Hey, if it's like Hamilton, you know, you're sending out 25% of it. I don't know if Hamilton sent out 25% of the time, but, but you're, you're, you're sending it out and it, there's usually a little memo on it and it'll say capital distribution, 5% or something. There'll usually be some backup as well to say how they calculated that, um, calculated what your check would equal. And, um, uh, it's a small distinction, but post recruitment, you know, it'll pre recruitment, it'll say capital distribution post-recruitment, your checks will start saying profit distribution. All right. So I'm almost ready to ask how to invest in an actual show, but <laughs> budget size, like if I'm an investor looking at it and I get a budget, if I see a budget of a million dollars versus a budget of 7 million, should I just assume that the $7 million budget is going to take longer to recoup years and years versus a 1 million budget maybe could recoup faster? That's a really good and complicated question. Um, what's more interesting What's going to give you a better view uh, of, of the entire viability of the project? And there's no way to predict, of course. What's going to give you the best view is a document called the recruitment schedule. Um, it's the, When I receive documents about a potential investment, it's the first thing I turn to because it's going to include your production budget. And it's also going to include both your fixed operating expenses and your variable operating expenses. It's a prediction for how long it will take a show to recoup based on two factors, pricing and capacity. And what you want to do when you look at that is, yeah, it's the first thing you're going to see is what it looks like at 100%. And most shows don't operate at 100%. One of the things you want to look at, it's called the break-even. The break-even is going to tell you, this is what we have to be operating at in order for our expenses and our income to meet. Is that's really high, like say it's like in the 70%, that's a red flag. If it's really low for a musical, you know, like in the 40% range, like that to you is an indication that we have a lot of space between um, our operating expenses and our potential income so that there's always room, if not necessarily to constantly be sending me money back on a consistent basis, there's at least room to keep our heads above water because a lot of times I, I can't speak to other industries, but I get frustrated sometimes uh, about the language that we use within theater about turning a profit on a week to week basis. Because the difference between making a profit and not making a profit is is a penny, right? Like it's it comes down to actual penny. I, as a producer, sometimes though I am beholden to my investors and I wanted I want to absolutely do right by their investment, I am only able to do that if I keep the show open. So if I'm making a profit, it means that I'm keeping the show open. 
I, I wish that we could adjust our language to just like, to talk about like, it's not that it's a profit making week. It's a, we kept the lights on week. We met our payroll obligations week. And so investors who are interested in knowing whether or not they're going to be investing into something that's viable should look at that recruitment schedule because it's going to tell you the the space that that the show has to operate under. It also kind of gives you an indication of what the runway is for them. You have to assume for a new musical that there's going to be some tough early weeks, even if it's um, a really exciting show that you think is going to sell very well. There's going to be comps um, meaning, you know, you're going to have some free tickets to give away to the Tony voters, uh, which can is actually adds up to be quite a lot. You're giving away tickets to group sales agents. And so you have to make sure that the show can shoulder that. So you're looking at the recruitment schedule. It's telling you the break even. It's telling you the, it's also, it, you, you, you know how to read it. You see what the production budget is. You see what the weekly operating expenses are. You can see what the royalties are, what the rent are. It's all broken down for you there. And so that's my recommendation to anybody who is trying to get a very quick snapshot of the viability of a project. As you were talking, I was thinking of Chicago on Broadway is in its 25th year. And I know I went to see it once and the audience was not full by any stretch of the imagination. And so I imagine that show running for 25 years has had to have weeks where it was not making its money back. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm not involved in Chicago and I can't speak to it. Um, but, you know, you we we structure like, for example, our royalties payouts on in a four week cycle. So those good weeks can offset the bad. Hopefully a show has some sort of financial cushion, some sort of reserve that they haven't sent back to their investors yet so that that those good times can offset the bad. Yeah, I mean, Chicago is a, a little bit of an outlier. And someday I hope, you know, uh, that the producers and general managers of that give us like a really interesting, you know, case study on 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 how it all broke down um, financially. But they structured, re- you know, they, they and Phantom, though they have to operate under certain deals that have evolved over the years, right, CBAs from the unions that they they are obligated to that have evolved over the years. There are other deals that they that they continue to operate under that were made at a very different time. So, so recruitment schedule. So look there, regardless of the budget size, and that should give you an idea of when the investment could be returned. If you're investing early, um, and we're talking like, let's say Bruce in Seattle, if you're investing in Bruce in Seattle, I assume there's not a recruitment schedule yet because you're working with a nonprofit. So you, you know, you're not going to make your money back. Great question. Yeah. We're not sending out recruitment schedules um, for enhancement deals, but you, you, the lead producer who's soliciting these investments certainly should have an idea of what most of the other components that would be a part of a recruitment schedule so that you can have an idea. So we were able to talk to our investors about what we anticipated our Broadway production budget to be and our Broadway weekly operating budget to be. And we told them what theaters we were targeting. So all of that can give you a global sense of, oh, okay, that's a pretty low operating operating expense. Um, so, and, and that theater is not the smallest one on Broadway, you know? So like, okay, there's gonna be a leap of faith in any investment. There's an even greater leap of faith when you are investing early money. Um, my producing partner, Tom Smeads, 
has been a part of this industry for a long time and almost every aspect in, in terms of um, the non-backstage and onstage roles. He's gone from being an usher to a house manager, to a company manager, to a general manager, to producer, uh, to a Tony award-winning producer. He's very savvy about how all this works. And I, of course, you know, am a total numbers nerd. And so, you know, it comes down to people feeling comfortable with us and that we bring a certain sensibility to it to protect their money and keep their interests. If not, the very first position is certainly something that is a, a, a serious consideration. I am always really honest. I want to keep the show open. And so keeping the show open, therefore, implies or therefore means that I am protecting my investor's investment. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So if you're a first-time investor and you don't see a recoupment schedule, that's probably because you're earlier than the Broadway run or the commercial run. Yeah, your document, the documents that you receive will be much, much less burdensome. Um, there might be a short operating agreement. Let's say for early money, it might be eight to nine pages, but on Broadway, it's 45 to 50. There's just because when you're uh, when you are raising money for Broadway, this is you're getting into the SEC of it all. You know, you're you're filing paperwork with the Securities Exchange Commission. And so it's a much higher burden of reporting and uh, disclosures. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. So seasonal shows, because you you are a lead producer on Christmas Carol on Broadway. It seems like every year, non-COVID years, there's like tw 20 shows that come in just for the holiday season. And I know that there's like a lot of tourists in the holidays, et cetera. But I just see all those shows and I think there's no way that all these shows make their money back. Um, is it? better or should we be cautious about investing in a holiday broadway show you know it's hard to say uh with christmas carol we are so proud of that production five out of five tony awards first play to ever win best original score i think that we have investors in that show that invested in it for the art of it for the storytelling of it that were absolutely had no no uh, anticipation of receiving their money back. We had and have a, um, a very interesting financial model for that show, I think, that set it up for the long term so that it wasn't just going to be a one and done seven weeks on Broadway type situation um, and somehow hope to recoup the expenses of mounting a production of that caliber. Um, we'll never know what it could have been We'll never know um, uh, what that model could have been because we produced it, of course, in 2019. And we had everything set up for 2020. And we all know what happened there. We took it um, in 2021, two national tours of it, one that was a sit down in San Francisco, one that kind of hopscotched around the West Coast, but primarily was in L.A., and was doing really well. Bradley Whitford was our uh, was our Scrooge for that uh, LA production. It, it, both productions were absolutely magnificent. I, I cannot tell you how proud I am of them. And then Omicron, as most people who are paying attention to what happened on Broadway know, Omicron um, also hit many national tours. It took us out, I believe, around December sixteenth for both productions. They both productions were the, were within like twenty four hours of each other. What I will say that we know about seasonal holiday shows is that, you know, if you're budgeted well, 
it it is it's a great thing to do you know starting in in at the end of um thanksgiving the real opportunity though for income for revenue are those 10 days before christmas americans you may be very surprised to to learn and i mean this i'm not sarcastic their appetite for, for despite uh christmas in july despite the hallmark channel starting um on december 1st with around November 1st with their all of their programming, the majority of uh, American audiences are not ready to experience um, their Christmas entertainment until those 10 days leading up to Christmas. And so for two productions to be cut off in those 10 days was pretty devastating um, for, for us as a, as, as a company. I would not say, that seasonal shows, I would not categorize things whole cloth. I think that there are very savvy producers out there that have great ideas about how to make a seasonal model work. I think that my my partners and I had a great idea. We'll just never really be able to know whether we'll never be able to have that exercise, all things considered, what it would have been like if we'd been able to go forward in 2020 with our plan. Got it. Okay. So <laughs> I'll stick with my brain of uh, maybe stay away from seasonal shows. That's still where my brain is. <laughs> Here's what I'll I'll say, and I hope that this comes across uh, with all of the uh, love I have for investors in theater. If you are investing in theater to make a profit, you're going to be disappointed. If you are investing in theater for the art of it and for the people of it, you know, you maybe believe in the artists or the producers. You will never be disappointed. It is such a risky investment, and there is no way to predict it. Listen, there, yes, you know there are. For, there is a Hamilton, but for every Hamilton, there are seventy-five hundred other shows that are not that sure thing. And so you have to ask yourself: You know, does this move me? Do I think that this deserves a Broadway platform? Do I believe in the artists? Do I believe in the producers? You know, you look at a show like Strange Loop, of which I'm not, I'm not officially involved with at all, though I have many friends who are. I suspect that anyone who was going out and asking people to write checks for that show came up against a lot of resistance. The, but the people that wrote those checks believed in the art that Michael R. Jackson had put on on page and believed that that was a story that needed to be told and needed to be told on the greatest stage in, in the world. And so I, as a consumer of, of this um, art form, am deeply grateful that this show exists. Whether or not anybody ever thought it was going to be a money-making prospect and, you know, it bodes well for them as the Tony Award, as the uh, winner of Best Musical um, at the Tony Awards this year. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are the recoupment schedule is one of the most important financial documents, specifically the break even point. Now from a numbers perspective, that's where you'll get the best idea of the likelihood the show could be one of those 20% that do turn a profit. The 40 year exploitation period of an author's work, that I didn't know and it's very specific to live theater and that means even if a show is a dud, it could eventually repay the money and even profit. Investing early is risky, but it can provide a higher return 
because you may get access to those points, the one for one or the one for four. Now that only matters if the show makes it past recoupment and into profit, but then it is quite helpful. Now also I noticed that all investors are treated with most favored nations. Now that's a really good thing for first time investors because they might not know if they're getting fair treatment, but the fact that that's pretty standard can put them at ease. Now, I also took note of this because whenever I've gotten an investment opportunity or a co-producing opportunity, it's always come very close to the opening of the show or the funding deadline. Now, before talking to Heather, I assumed that that was a bad sign because maybe the last minute financing meant the show was cash strapped, but that's not necessarily it. And so now I'm a little less wary because I know that investors coming in at the 11th hour Investors who may have the advantage of seeing that a show is doing well in previews will be getting the same financial deal as somebody who invested years before the run as the show started its bid for Broadway. I learned about the three types of producers on Broadway, the lead, executive, and co-producers. Now, the lead producers are the ones making the calls. The executive is a day-to-day hired producer, and the co-producers are the ones connecting investors to the lead producers. And of course, I noticed the importance of the 10 days before Christmas for seasonal shows. I always wondered how the seasonal Broadway shows turned a profit, but I suppose if you're selling out for 10 days straight and your overhead costs are trimmed tight, then there must be enough profit to be had. Now, historically, I know that the first couple weeks of December and the first week of January are low attendance, and I'm only judging that by the fact that the ticket prices are very low at those times. But if you make the profit in the 10 days before Christmas, then you're set. What are your thoughts about today's episode? Did you learn anything? So let me know by emailing me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on LinkedIn at Ethan Steimel. So feel free to drop a comment there. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get a podcast feed with early releases and all the bonus content including next week's episode where we discuss accredited investors, minimum investment units, and how to access opportunities to invest. Join up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. Now let me leave you with two action items today. The first is to check in on your retirement savings for the year. We're two-thirds through, and if you have a union or employee-sponsored plan, Log in and see what you've contributed this year and what that's projected to be in retirement. If you are a freelancer, check in on your IRA, your SEP IRA, your individual 401k, your brokerage account, whatever you use to save for retirement. See if you've contributed enough this year. And if you don't know what enough is, a general rule of thumb is 15 to 20% of what you've made pre-tax. And remember, your retirement funds should be separate from the money that's in your savings or the money that you've set aside to pay your taxes. If you're listening and you don't have any retirement savings, don't fret. You can go check your Social Security benefits by logging into ssa.gov. Now, at any age, you can create an account and it will show you your projected Social Security income when you retire. I just did this to make sure that it's still as easy as ever. You go to ssa.gov, you click Login, and then you click My Social Security. Now, if you ever want to know how much money you earned in a year, but you don't know how to read your tax filing or you don't know where your taxes, here's a workaround. 
you go to ssa.gov and you click on your earnings report. Now it'll show you a list of how much money you earned every single year. Now my report goes back all the way to 2002, which is where I made $807 from my first summer job. Okay, so that is the action item for you. The second action item is something you can do for me, and that is to leave a review of Artistic Finance on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Now that helps us go up in the rankings and it helps others find the show. Nicole and I would wildly appreciate it if you would take some time to do that. That's it for today. See you next week for the rest of our chat with Heather Shields. Until then, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.